The conversation that I always have with buyers and merchandisers and, and people in the C-suite is, if anything, you know, we take your, your understanding of the consumer and what they like and, and, and the shopper and how they behave and we, we work that into the AI and then we help you scale yourself, right? Like no human is ever going to merchandise 18,000 products. Welcome to What's Next Podcast with Yumindi Francis. We're here today with my dear friend, Annabelle Maldonado, the CEO and founder of Psyche AI. Let's get into it. Annabelle, how did you get into this space? Who are you? What do you do? Tell <laughs> us, tell us. Umindi, thank you for having me. It's so great to be on your podcast. So I'm Annabelle, the founder and CEO of Psyche AI. Essentially, we started, I started out in neuropsychology. I was always really interested in brain science. Why are we the way we are? What makes us tick? Why do we like what we like? While studying psychology, you know, there's so many theories, but I always found that anything in the brain was very tangible. You know, you could theorize all day who said what, why do you, you know, your parents said this to you, but if you stick someone into an fMRI and, you know, their brain lights up, you're like, okay, that's, that's the connection. And so that's where I started. I always loved fashion, lifestyle, travel, all of those things, but, you know, I wanted to study something quote unquote serious, but, you know, I couldn't stay away. As fate happened, I went to London on a gap year. Um, and ended up working in luxury e-commerce for over 12 years. And, you know, it all kind of came full circle because while I was working in fashion, I, I loved the industry, but I hated how we were always, how we were promoting things. You know, it okay. was always florals for spring, as you know, you know, unironically, uh, leopard is gone, leopard is back, here's bestsellers, the editors are wearing. There was no inquiry into, you know, I felt there was a real depth behind when we see something like a pair of shoes, mm -hmm. a dress. Mm -hmm. You know, um, where we're like, I gotta have that. That just feels like a part of you, like a missing limb or something. And you'll just do anything to get it. It was such a deep visceral reaction when we see something where we're like, that's me or that's absolutely not me. But no one was really looking into that. And that's when I sort of started looking to my psychology background to, to establish why we respond to certain types of aesthetic, developed a framework. And then the tech application happened, which is essentially you know, the framework of understanding why we wear what we wear, why we like what we like can be plugged into a recommendation engine to to essentially recommend on a more personal level. Okay, okay. Annabelle, I want to talk a bit about your career and your journey before launching Psyche AI. You've been a journalist for wonderful publications such as Vogue. Your, your, your company has been featured in some of the top publications like TechCrunch as well. Tell me about your journey. So I was in London working at the National Health Service. So it's, it's like the, the government's health essentially system, working with children under five with query autism. Super long story, but I don't know, like I just staying in London and Paris, looking at, you know, people amazingly dressed walking down the street. I had this feeling like, okay, there's something here. And I, I got into the industry because they entered this competition that Marie Claire, the British Marie Claire was having, offering mentorship. There were, it was like a mentorship competition. And one of the women that was on offer was the editor in chief herself. And you had to like, you know, enter by, by doing a little, a little writing sample and explaining why you wanted to be in the program. And I won that. So it was amazing. I had Trish. That's incredible. Thank <laughs> you. Who was the editor in chief at the time, um, mentor me and I wrote some pieces for them. They were actually about dating initially. You know, it was very, it was very Carrie Bradshaw <laughs> wannabe at the time. Every every fashion girl's early dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had a photo shoot, which was amazing. You know, they pulled some samples. It was amazing. And then um, 
did a few sort of editorial internships uh, at Marie Claire and a few of the fashion supplements in some of the newspapers in London. So yeah, it was a really fun time, but obviously like, you know, they don't pay very well. <laughs> so then I went into publishing and I actually worked in a non-fashion publisher for a while, but learned a lot about sort of the editorial process and how ads are sold in print magazines. Then I ended up working at Couture Lab, which was actually Carmen Busquets, who was Natalie Massonet's first investor in Net-A-Porte. She had this startup Couture Lab with a lot of the original team from Net-A-Porte there. And I got hired there to do as, as the web editor, so doing the homepage, selecting what products to show. And But I did everything under the sun while I was there. I mean, there was a lot of the sexy stuff and working on the shoots and the, you know, product selections and and writing mailers, but I was always also wearing like a high-vis vest and some random factory looking for missing stock. So it was really like going to like luxury com university. Right. And that's kind of where I started, you know, thinking that after the, after uh, Couture Lab, kind of my time at Couture Lab finished, I was doing kind of more brand consulting and working with brands to define their, their sort of message and their, their press releases and what they say about themselves. And that was really when I started to think I was also doing freelance writing on the side and it was very much, I started to then start, started to feel that there was a depth missing behind how we were looking at it. And you were writing for Vogue at Vogue Business. Business, b- business, uh, and no, business b- of Fashion. Business of Fashion. I did a few op-eds um, around see now, buy now. So like, it, that's when I started kind of looking more into consumer psychology. Um, I think at BOF, they were like, yeah, you've got a really that's strong the wheels started turning. voice. Right. And, you know, and I, I decided I wanted to look at fashion in a more intelligent way. And that was psychologically, right, which made so much sense given what I studied. Right. I think it's so important that people understand the journey and know that, you know, you just don't arrive someplace in one shot, that there's iterations mm. and a pivot and the bravery to pivot and try new things and not put yourself in a box is exciting. It's so true because you know what? I would sometimes when it was, there was inklings of this, like, oh, maybe I should talk about fashion psychology and why we wear. And I remember having a conversation over like, it was a fashion week and I was sitting with this street style photographer that I kind of become friendly with. We were like tired and getting a coffee. And he was really discouraging. He was just like, oh, no one, very few people are going to care about something like that. Like, do you think that, you know, these people... You know, that he kind of wanted to maintain the status quo, that fashion would always be this fun, area, you know, fun, flighty, frivolous thing. And I was just like, no, it's more than that. It's not because I'm a deep person and I, I see the value in it in a much deeper way. It's not just this fun, frivolous world. It's more it's than that. It's different things for different people. There's a business behind it. Yeah. You know, um, millions and millions of people are employed by the industry and there's a creative side, but there's a business side and there's folks that make it tick. And I think it's really wonderful when you've been entrenched in something and have an opportunity to see beyond that and see how you can iterate and change and evolve and make things happen. But it's also brave to step out and do something. Yeah, no, 100%. And so, you know, I hung on to these snippets when you would hear, like Albert Albaz once said that, you know, the best thing he can hear is when a consumer, a customer of his would say something like, you know what, Albert, I appreciated Lan Van because the dress I had that you made, it gave me strength to go to divorce court and face my ex. Right. Right. It's, it's, that's, that's the power of fashion, right? Or, or it gives you the ability to, we say it a lot, but really to dream of an alternative future, to dream of like, to help you live into your best self. So that's what always drove me, I would say. Amazing. Amazing. Well, one thing 
fun fact, I also have a degree in neuropsychology. Of course. So we have that connection <laughs> as well. And so it, I find it so interesting that you took that, the science of that and applied it to, to this space. I mean, there's so many opportunities for this to kind of transcend the way, you know, we shop and the way things change. So how does it work? What, it, what can a consumer expect? Take us through like, a moment, an instance with the technology. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how we created Psyche and how how that understanding has been embedded into the tech and then okay. what the consumer can come to expect. So, you know, when we first, when I first started looking into the framework, um, I looked at the big five model of personality, which is, you know, when scientists look at what make, you know, who are we? Like these five traits are essentially the most basic building blocks, right? So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. They're basically spectrums and where we fall on the spectrum kind of, you know, basically tra translates into a very specific personality code, right? And there are right. like over 3,000 combinations, which is why it's a good AI problem. It's not something a human's really going to be able to put together. Okay. Right. You're high in this and you're low in this. And that's why you hate V-necks and florals. Right. right. So when we train the models, which means, you know, giving it lots and lots of information so it starts to understand, we fed it a lot of consumer personality data, which is sort of part of our proprietary data, um, and lots and lots of luxury fashion product. Um, and, and essentially that w the model itself assigns psychological traits to the products, um, so that the AI understands, okay, this is my natural consumer. Mm -hmm. Right. A broke couch gets a score. Um, an oversized logo hoodie gets a score. Right. And it's it's qualities that we use in natural language anyway. Right. When you would say something is romantic or directional or avant garde, mm -hmm. those are just qualities. And this is a numeric way of describing that. Um, and so that's a model that we've trained and developed in house, along with five other non personality type models, neural networks. So essentially, I mean, if you think about how big tech works, Instagram, Spotify, you know, this is, they're just large recommendation engines the way that, that ours is. So right. they rank products. If you and I were following the same Instagram accounts, we'd still see a different order of things based on our interactions and the AI deciding that this is the most relevant thing for us. Um, and so that's exactly what we do for retailers. We take their categories and we re-rank them in order to show the most relevant products on every page. And so for the consumer, really, when it's working well, you wouldn't necessarily notice anything other than, wow, there's so much stuff I like yes. here. Yes. That's what you want to see, right? Like, so I, I mean, we're probably going to like some, probably going to get fairly similar results, but right. you know, monochrome, black, white, neutral, an architectural detail, bold, gold hardware, where someone else might like something a bit more softer, pastels, right. cleaner. Right. The New Yorker and me always in jet black, <laughs> which is the case today. But hey, when you go to Miami, you're going to get different results. And then I change. It, yeah. I change up. No, I love this so much. And I intimately understand it because in 2020, there was a shift in how I shop. When there was nowhere for me to go, I definitely spent time via e-commerce and I understood the value of having and, you know, being someone that's very tied to the fashion industry. You know, it's 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 something that we do before we go to Paris Fashion Week or London or something like this. You shop before the trip. Right. And it's overwhelming to go on a website and not know where to go. There's so much to see, so much to choose from. And I really shopped just things that were curated for me on platforms. And that's where I shop. And so being able to have that reverberated throughout the industry in a more in-depth way, widespread is, is really amazing. 
And so it's an exciting technology to see. How do you think AI in general is going to affect the industry? You know, there's it's still early adoption right now. Yeah, I mean, just to comment on what you said first about, you know, shopping for a trip and and being able to whittle then your own curation down. I think that's something that as industry professional professionals, we take for granted because we have such strong awareness, right? We're like, all right, you know, I'm going to, I don't know, Cartagena or Miami, and I'm going to want like these brands and these sizes and these colors and MIDI. You know, we can use all the filters because we have that awareness. But what's interesting is most shoppers don't shop that way. Um, you know, they they don't know what they want with that kind of acuity, right? And so we're we're unburdening them and we're doing that for them. How will AI change the industry broader? I mean, I think it's going to automate a lot of things. It should be automated. More than anything, it's going to make us a lot more intelligent through, you know, every part of, through you know, in every single area, right? The fact that, I mean, taking personality and aesthetics aside, I think even just being able to personalize on on sizes and price points and being able to show the right things to the consumer from that from that perspective. And then also taking the intelligence um, based on now what we know is in demand uh, to inform buying and creative decisions. So is this mostly for multi-brand retailers or sole retailers? Mostly multi-brand. We work well where there's an inherent discovery problem, right? Some of the larger retailers that we're working with have like 18,000 products in one category. Okay, and that's okay. like 400 pages of product. And we right. know that the average consumer clicks through 2.5 pages. And then we're done. And we're just, we just, <laughs> yeah, we want to make sure that I mean, some of this product is never seen. And then you don't know why, it's, why it didn't sell. Did the right consumer actually even see it? And so that's what we're doing. We're reaching in and putting it in front of them. And that's part of the value proposition as well as affecting the bottom line. I think, you know, retail has always been a, a big part of the GDP of and creating jobs and Huge. so forth. And so if you are creating a, a technology that allows a retail entity to increase their sales in this climate where, you know, things have really changed, you know, with the advent of social media, there's more e-commerce, more competition. It's really important to have New technology help you cut through the fray and increase your bottom line. So that's why I think this technology is so important. And I really wanted to sit down and have a conversation with you about it. But tell me a bit more about, you know, how you got started and where you began. What's your journey? How do you get here? Now you're a CEO and founder of a tech company. You know, has this always been a dream of yours? What are your challenges in business? No, I, mean, I never imagined that I'd be a CEO and founder of a technology company. Really? I was always, no, I never, I was always someone who just, you know, felt very intuitively of whether I'm on my path or not on my path. And I, I always just followed my curiosity and my, my, my obsession. And, you know, it was much like I've always, much like I described it earlier, right? I, I liked, I liked science and I liked the creative. And, you know, in a way, I think it was always my mission to sort of join up these two worlds. Right. I, I think part of the reason why this technology doesn't exist yet is the quantitative and the technical sits very far from the creative and the qualitative. Right. And they don't know how to speak to each other. And I feel like because I've had this really unusual pivot, you know, studying neuropsychology and working in health and then luxury e-commerce and the people that have sort of, you know, joined us now connect these two worlds. So that's where I got to where I am today. Well, that's, you know, the important thing about fashion and tech. I think for technology to influence and affect the fashion industry in a positive way, you need individuals who can be translators, who can translate and help others in the industry, the creatives, understand 
how to move forward in a different space. 100%. Because I think part of it is, you know, a lot of the recommendation engines that have worked well in Amazon where perhaps people are buying more functional things or in grocery where like, okay, you bought this brand of toilet paper, you're going to come back for more. Um, it's not necessarily the same thing, right? Like, you know, you have this black vest, you've got one, you don't necessarily need three other black vests. But if we get the you know, the quality of what you like about it, we could recommend so many other things to you. <laughs> Speaking of Amazon and Google and the Microsofts <laughs> of the world, have are is there any apprehension or consideration to how, you know, being a small company compared to them, how that affects your growth? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because they have access to obviously lots of data points, but, you know, data alone isn't enough. You have to be able to to build it the right way and ask the right questions and have some particular understanding. So we're smaller and we're new, but we've got this, you know, we've got a patent for our personality model, which is really exciting. Which okay, really, that's amazing. Thank you. Which really <laughs> protects our, our ability to, to use psychographic um, data and, and personality traits the way that we, we do that by assigning them to the products to recommend, right? So that's pretty broad, so a huge win for us in the US. Um, and so, yeah, we've got the specialist knowledge, right? That and this expert know-how bred out of my experience um, that's gone into it. So that's what we have that's, I think, unique. So there's always this conversation about AI taking our jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on that for better or for worse? And, and what's next? I think that, you know, anyone that we're helping sort of in, in retail, buying, merchandising, and, and the scale at which they're, they're working, there, there's absolutely no danger in that. If anything, what, you know, what I, I like, the conversation that I always have with buyers and merchandisers and, and people in the C-suite is, if anything, you know, we take your your understanding of the consumer and what they like and, and, and the shopper and how they behave and we we work that into the AI and then we help you scale yourself, right? Like no one is ever going to, no human is ever going to merchandise 18,000 products. And you, even if you could do it beautifully, you couldn't do it well for each person. And that's the right. whole point of AI personalization. Right, right. So what are you excited about in the fashion industry altogether? I think I'm excited about finally like understanding individuality. I think the problem with trends always bothered me because it, it it really kind of perpetrated this very sheep like, you know, this is what's in, this is what's out, this is what's out. And and the way that people that aren't in fashion, the broader public talks about it is very much like that. Right. I hated meeting friends who were in the industry. And they're like, oh, well, I look forward to meeting you because I want to hear about what's in. Yeah. It's just, you know, like think about what you react to. Forget about what's in. I mean, because we do react to trends, but not every single trend. Right. Right. There's certain things really, you know, I really like what, you know, Daniel Lee was doing at Bottega. That really resonated, but not so much what so-and-so was doing in another house. Or, you know, learning learning about you and what makes you feel electric. And I think this, you know, bef even before the tech application, I always, you know, did a lot of work in fashion psychology to try to help people understand that better. You know, so there's less noise, right? right? You're buying stuff that you don't even really like because of marketing noise, right? Like learn to invest more in the things that you like. Black, white, <laughs> right? whatever the case may be. <laughs> yeah. So who inspires you in the industry? Good question. Or in general. Yeah. What no. inspires you? What keeps you going? What gives you this drive? Because it's not easy building a tech company, fundraising, managing staff, all the things, having a family. So what what inspires you and keeps you going? 
You know, and I think back, it's the consumer ultimately, right? It's it's the consumer. I know that there's this conversation like you're either serving the consumer or the retailer, your B2B or your B2C, but and maybe it's, you know, I have this kind of very utopian vision that it's a win-win all around when we can kind of create that awareness and that understanding of, of who likes what. I think that will really usher in this new wave of consumerism. And what inspires me is we had a pilot that was B2C um, in 2021. We ran it for six months to train okay. to train our data to validate uh, consumer demand. And we had so many consumers writing in saying that, you know, this is something they've intuitively always felt. And now no one and no one talked about it and they've been waiting for it and how they think it's the future of fashion and they're so excited. And, you know, the pilot was meant to run for six months. So, you know, it kind of hurt closing them, closing that down to do something bigger, to bring it to much more. And so, you know, I just I want to be able to bring that back back to the consumer. It's very powerful to be able to kind of shop in a way that, you know, your money's going into something that's going to create a lot of value for you cognitively. Right. So I know that part of the business is via e-commerce, but tell us about the in-store experience. I know there's, what's the value proposition behind that and how does that work? Yeah, I mean, we really just thought online for a while, right? Because, you know, tech, you think online, but I myself had a few experiences where I'm like, you know what? We we, we like shopping offline. Everyone likes to go for lunch. Right. Go shopping. Have a moment. Have those bags down. (laughs) Have a nice salad and a glass of wine. Like that's still... Great. But I think the problem is, you know, it's it could be so inefficient, right? Especially if you're shopping in a new area, you're like you don't know what stores to hit. You've got half an hour or an hour to dedicate to it. And it's just you kind of just don't do it because okay. you, you don't know if that's going to be time well spent. Or you go to a department store and it's like there's two floors of women's wear and it, it's overwhelming. And I just kind of thought because we possess this, you know, we have the patent and we have the psychographic understanding of the consumer and we personalize on a per user basis, meaning every user essentially has their own model. We, we're very well placed to, to roll out this consumer ID where they essentially are able to unlock personalization at any touch point. So the vision here of what we're offering, um, and creating is that you would, for example, go to, go to your favorite department store, multi-brand retailer, be able to flash your, your personal ID, um, you know, with like a QR code, uh, on a tablet or a screen on the wall. And then you can see narrow down selections there which can immediately be bought for you to try on to the change room instead of waiting through those racks. And so you're cre- you're opting in because privacy is a big, mm. you know, deal and conversation right now yeah. with consumers. It's really affecting the way we move and sell via e-commerce mm-hmm. and, and, and on social media. So are consumers given the opportunity to opt in? 100%. Okay. Yeah. If they want this, if they want the value, then they opt in and they they have control. Okay. Got it. Got it. And so another hot topic right now mm-hmm. is chat GPT. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And I think it's just, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I'm I would have so, to agree. <laughs> I mean, I'm so happy that there's been so much noise around AI the, the past few years because people are just, there's so many people saying they're doing machine learning who are absolutely not doing machine learning. And it's been really frustrating, uh, you know, when fundraising or when presenting your value proposition to to when you are really building um a really sophisticated stack so no one's actually seen like ai do anything that amazing yet until chat gpt kind of showed us showed us what it can do and so it's a really great time you know it's the ai renaissance as they say and let's talk about just building the company and fundraising how is that experience <laughs> what is that like 
Oh, uh, it's 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 a wild ride. It's a it's you know it's a roller coaster, as they say, with high highs. And Always low said lows. there's no fun in fundraising, but <laughs> it's an e- it's a necessary evil. Yeah, <laughs> and then you find folks along the way. But tell me, yeah, definitely, and, and building the company and hiring all of that is is, is all very similar. Yeah, I think one thing you never imagine is exactly how how, how high the high uh, highs are and exactly how lows low the lows are. Okay. But um, yeah, it's just it's just a, a, there is some fun in fundraising, I would say, because it's. It's just like anything. You meet a lot of people and you find connection. Yeah. Right. And whether it's fundraising or dating or, you know, because those analogies are often made, it's, it's the same. It's the same thing. Obviously, it's disheartening when you expect to connect with someone and you don't. But quite often you don't expect it and you do. And those are amazing days. And it's, you know, it's so rewarding to find someone that really believes in your, your mission and adds value and continues to propel and push you along. And you've been able to do that successfully and continue to make strides, which is so exciting to watch and see. Um, Thank you. That's really great because it's not easy. We know what the statistics are for female founders. And, you know, you're here as living proof that it can be done. It's really amazing to have a passion, an idea, prove your concept and keep going. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just been about, you know, hustling in terms of meeting as many people as you can, having many conversations and in many geographies. And that's definitely been sort of my advantage that I like doing that. I like having the conversations. I like meeting people. I know people from many walks of life. So, you know, have met some of my investors in kind of unconventional ways, but it's definitely the way to do it. Just meet as many people as you can. Speaking of geography, which you just mentioned, globalization in business in general is a big thing for me. And so how do you feel about, you know, global expansion and are there any nuances in your technology versus the Western, Eastern world? Because I know you're you're ready to take it all. <laughs> Indeed, you know, I think you have to when you're when you're basically bringing an innovative technology to life, you have to look for the mavericks, look for the early adopters. And again, just like with fundraising, there are going to be people in those businesses that are like, yes, this is. This is what we need to solve our bleeding neck problems. This isn't nice to have. This is crucial, right? Um, you know, we like to say personalized, and it's true. Personalized will be the default state, and the people that recognize that now can be anywhere, right? And I think the word's out on whether um, my bias is confirmed that often it's in North America where where, where you're going to find those mavericks. But I also want to remain open-minded that they could be anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So in a utopian world, what would you love to see happen? In a utopian world, it's, it, you know, what I feel that the psychographic, the best thing about what the psychographic data does, and, I, you know, I didn't mention this earlier, part of the reason why I really like the big five is that there's so many studies in academia that prove, like, your big five trait correlations with so many things, like from music preferences to food preferences, if you could believe it, to just everything under the sun. And I'm like, okay, it really anchors so much. And really what that enables us to then do with the ID and this data is to connect things in a way that wasn't possible before. Because even now, you know, we're rolling out personalization to X retailer, to Y retailer, to this vertical, to that vertical. But eventually what, what the utopia that I see is that we're able to make inferences from things, right? So you book a boutique hotel, um, what example should I give here? St. Barth? <laughs> Where else? <laughs> and then, you know, you go on uh, Crate and Barrel, we know you go on the coffee tables, we know exactly which ones to put at the top. Right. Right. And then you you go do something else 
um, you know, you're listening to stuff on Spotify, then like Peloton knows what rides you want to take. You don't have to filter what restaurants music. you want to eat. Oh my at, gosh. The yeah. The movies you want to see. You, ch- you check in care. <laughs> yeah. You check into that hotel. They know what welcome drink to give you. They know what music to play in your room. This is exciting. Yeah. You know, it's really exciting. It's an optimized to see. life. Yeah. Coming from a place of extreme convenience, New York City, it's just exciting to hear that there's more on the horizon to make our lives even more easier. 100%. Yeah. yeah and it continues to iterate in a comfortable way, in fact. Yeah. In a way that I think it reduces friction for our real lives. That's the way I see it. Also, if you think about the Internet of Things, like, you know, this the system that will make decisions for us, like homes that will be able to order things that we need. That personalization yeah. factors into that. It's the Jetsons coming to life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what advice do you have for fashion and retail brands trying to make sense of AI and its impact on e-commerce? I mean, I think understand what kind of data you need to create the kind of intelligence you need. Um, if you're a big retailer, work with us. <laughs> if you're a smaller retailer or starting small, or I think the first thing to find out, because I think you know everyone wants to know, okay, who is our consumer? Think beyond just the usual demographic data, right? I think you, you know, as a consultant, you've probably sat in a ton of these meetings where they're trying to find out who their consumer is. And it's something like, let's call her Jane. She's, you know, this age and she lives Well, the information is here now. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Try to think, try to go deeper and then start to collect data that can then, you can create clusters with that data, right? Actually, we have two, two nuanced customers and we know that based on something. And you could start collecting that data in many different ways. You could put up a little questionnaire, you could not analyze mailers, but yeah, I mean, there's always junior data scientists that can help if you know the questions you want to ask and the framework you want to create, there's always a junior data scientist that can work with you to do that. Got it. Noted. Annabelle, considering your background didn't start off in tech, do you have any advice for any non-technical people that would like to explore careers in tech? Yes, absolutely. So three things. Um, I'd say definitely immerse yourself in the industry, read books about from other tech founders and things they've done. One I, I can recommend is... Um, the Hard Thing About the Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, who's now at Andreessen Horowitz. You just learn a lot about how technology can become valuable um, and, and how it sells. The The second thing is definitely just try and think of like, even if you're not an engineer, what about your experience is going to make this tech valuable? For me, it was the psychology and the neuropsychology and how, you know, in many ways, the brain is not dissimilar from creating AI because that's what we're creating. We're, we're creating a, a thought processes. So that was my unique angle into the tech. And three is you will be initially overconfident in in terms of your ability to evaluate engineers that you bring into the team. You know, initially you might think like, oh, okay, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Great. So, you know, your challenge will be to find really good technical talent to join you. And what really saved me was getting advisors that helped me evaluate those engineers and whether they were right for a startup, which is different from being a good engineer for a big, big company. Um, and I found those on LinkedIn, just cold outreach, and they were happy to help. So the tech industry has actually been very, very kind to me. I have another question for you. How was the process for you in selecting your advisors? Were they people that you knew before, mentors, or? No, I met them. I met them all at different stages. You know, it was just very, it was kind of faded. They all came in at, at the right stage. You know, Carmen Busquets was my 
probably very first official advisor, mentor, eventually investor. And then that happened organically. And then as we evolved, the more technical investors, I, I sought them out, but they liked what we were doing. And it was just very, um, very organic. But, you know, I had to do my outreach. Sounds good. So what do you spend the most of your time doing? Oh, my working life, non-working life, <laughs> little non-working life that I On have. On a plane. <laughs> I yeah. travel. Yeah, I'm trying to get the best deal at a transatlantic flight. Um, I spend a lot of time, I think right now, like refining, refining our go-to-market strategy, speaking to retailers. I think broadly speaking, sharing the value prop. Like we're coming, right. we're coming out to the world. That's that's what I spend most of my time doing. So refining, explaining it in in a way that hits hits as deep as possible and as clear as possible. Um, working with the team, obviously, um, working closely with the tech team. I think when you run a technology company, it's not just like here, go build this. You have to communicate constantly. Yeah, and I ask this of everyone: like, how do you find balance outside of this? What Oof. do you what do you do to unwind to make yourself tick? It's really important as a founder and a CEO to make time for yourself. So what do you, it what is. do you do? I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, you really do need to sort of invest in yourself because otherwise everything else just, just goes down a bad path. Two things. I have a, a daughter who's almost two. So spending time with her, it's probably very, it's kind of like polar opposite to anything you do in business. <laughs> and so that quickly grounds you and kind of calms you. So I spend time with her or um, I really like fitness. So I like going for a run, hitting the gym. There's this gym that I like to go to, which has a really nice steam room. So I go and I, I steam. Yeah. Steam away the stress. That's so that's do my I. Hot tip. I love a steam room. I try to cook. I like cooking when I can. That's also therapeutic for yeah, me as well. I mean, it, it really is thing. a luxury to be able to sit, especially when you're on the go and you travel a lot. It's so therapeutic to sit and create a lovely meal That's at so your nice. leisure and enjoy that, you know, yeah. when it's not a requirement. <laughs> yeah, when you actually you know? have time. When you actually have time. No set recipe, but like you pick out some vegetables, you do some chopping. I mean, that's, that's yeah. I mean, we just have so much in common. I know. <laughs> so, you know, it's been so lovely to have you here and be in conversation with you. I'm so excited about this new technology. I think that being at the forefront of this is going to have a lot of impact on the retail industry in general that's going to reverberate and make life easier for folks. And I'm so happy to know that you're the face of that. Thank and you. And making that happen in the world. Thank so you. excited. Best of luck to you and Psyche AI as you move forward. How do we find you? online. We want to let everybody know how to follow you. We're on Psyche.com. We have an Instagram, um, Psyche underscore, at Psyche underscore AI. Um, and I am pretty active also on LinkedIn. Okay, great. We share a lot there and on my personal Instagram at Annabelle Maldonado. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, Annabelle, for joining us today. I'm your host, Yumindi Francis, and this is What's Next Podcast. You can find me at Yumindi360 on Instagram and you Mindy Francis on LinkedIn. Take care. <laughs>